Well, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, or actually, we'll, be, we'll do the background reading uh, beginning of verse 1. We're continuing with part 2 of last week's message that I've titled, Our Story, His Glory. If you'll pardon me while I lubricate a little bit here. But as I said, we'll, re we'll read this entire passage for context and then focus on verses 7 through 14. Hopefully you have a Bible open at this point. If not, the words will be on the screen. But I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of God's word and just with attentiveness to his voice in it. Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, uh, uh, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, pre having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, this is your word, true and living, and we open it now with the expectation, as always, that you have truth and life for us to be um, disclosed, to open our hearts to understand to apply to our lives in powerful and practical ways. And so, God, we open bare our hearts to you and open our ears to hear so that we might understand and be changed and transformed by our encounter with you. And so we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, and for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your instrument today for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you sort of get it again as you, as you read it. I feel this way every time I, I read uh, Ephesians chapter 1, particularly those first 14 verses, and have so many times. But as I said last week, it's like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. There is so much that comes one thing after another. And as I'm reading it, I'm reminded of that. It's just so overwhelmingly good. I was reminded in reflecting on, uh, on this 
For one of my summer jobs during college, I worked for an apartment complex, and I did kind of grunt work. I did lawn maintenance. I moved a lot of furniture in and out of apartments, depending on whether they wanted it furnished or unfurnished. We moved refrigerators up and down stairs if the refrigerator needed to be replaced and, uh, and all that sort of thing. But the men who owned the apartment complex, this was up in Jacksonville, North Carolina, the men who owned the apartment complex would occasionally go out to Camp Lejeune and uh, bid on surplus items that were being auctioned off. It's so sort of like, think about Army-Navy surplus store, except for far less interesting. Because they were, they were interested in items that would be useful for their apartment complex. So like if they had done some major project in military housing or facilities in some way and they had surplus uh, material they were getting rid of, they were interested in exploring that and bidding on it and so forth. But the items were sold by lot. So it gr grouped a large group of items together and you had to bid on all of it there was something in there that you were interested in, you had to be interested in all of it, or at least buy it and take it home. And to hear them tell it, you never knew exactly what you were getting. There would be a loose description of the contents in that lot, but it was incomplete and imprecise. And so the whole lot uh, had to be procured and then when you got it home or when they got it back to their apartment complex they could open it and find out what all was in there. I remember this one occasion where all of the, where I was aware of all of this a truck drove up uh, their flatbed truck you know with the rails on the side or whatever and it was just almost overflowing with air conditioning filters. There were boxes uh, of other sorts under underneath that, but they had loose air filters just stacked and you know strapped down. It looked like uh, you know the Beverly Hillbillies riding up the Clampets or whatever, and um, that's really what they wanted. They knew there were air filters in there, didn't know what size they were and to what extent they'd be able to use them. But of course, they were able to bid on it for so cheap uh, that it was worth the risk. It was worth rolling the dice. But I thought about that because, again, there, there's this uh, reality of having to get the whole lot and open it up and then find out what had been procured. And Ephesians 1 really sort of tells us a story of that sort, that in Christ a lot has been procured for us. A lot, we could say that, uh, we could use that word in two different ways. It's a lot. <laughs> and I just read it and you were listening and you know once again, it's a lot. But it was a package deal as well. And what's true of every single one of us is whenever we, as he says here, heard the gospel and believed it, we didn't know all of what we were getting. But in this case, all of it was good. There was... There was there, there were no air filters that didn't fit your furnace. There was no surplus stuff that you were then going to have to figure out how to get rid of. It was all overwhelmingly good. And it all serves, as we 
uh, considered last week to bring praise and glory to God, to the praise of his glorious grace. As I said uh, last week, we could, we could maybe sum up this passage by saying we're blessed in Christ to the praise of his glory. And if we sort of get those words in our memory, that those are sort of the hooks to hang the whole thing on. Blessed in Christ to the praise of his glory. But this morning, as we just continue this passage and continue this training of thought, I want to examine this lot that has been purchased. We open up the package and look at what all has been procured for us in Christ. What is ours in Christ? Well, number one, it says here, beginning in verse uh, 7 and forward, that in him we have redemption and forgiveness. Our sin came at a cost. It comes at a cost. And to be delivered out of that sin, there was a price to pay. You think about a ransom that uh, kidnappers would charge, if you will, in order to set somebody free. You think about restitution that must be paid, certain crimes that also had a cost associated with them, damages that have to be repaid. There's restitution to pay. There's fines or legal fees to pay and so forth. The costs associated with wrongdoing, ransom to be paid to the enemy who holds us captive. We have been redeemed. We have been bought back out of bondage. And he's speaking here of a spiritual reality. Uh, we're captive to the enemy. And again, he'll, he'll um, elaborate on this as we get into chapter 2. Slaves to the enemy and also slaves to sin itself. Jesus said he who sins is a slave to sin. And here's the interesting thing about that. I believe there are many, many people who understand that, even if they don't call it sin. In other words, people who are not Christian, who aren't religious at all, maybe don't believe in God in any way, shape, or form, who wouldn't call sin, sin, and yet know very well what it is to be held captive by it, to be enslaved to it. You think of people who have... Um, addictions to substances, alcohol, and drugs, who uh, at a certain point wish they could stop and they can't. They watch the destruction that it does and they can't stop it. Enslaved to it. You think about um, people who are just um, enslaved to pornography, who sit online on into the wee hours of the morning, hours and hours and hours of their life, of sleep being taken away from them, knowing it's not, there's nothing about that that's good for them. And they know it and yet are ensnared by it. You think about uh, a, a, just a lust for, a pursuit of, appetites for, 
material things. More money, more achievement, more power, more things people can buy that just consumes the life of somebody. And we could go on and on and on, and you could think, if you're honest enough and you reflected for long enough, you could think of the thing in your life that just gets its hook inside of you. And, and, and in a certain respect, enslaves us, ensnares us. Now, we don't, we don't live um, under the weight of that. We don't, we're not supposed to live after we know Christ. We're not supposed to live as slaves uh, to our sin. In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. And yet we still battle it. Now, my point in saying all that is like we, even somebody who's not a Christian understands the notion of being taken captive by sin. And Ephesians 1 tells us Jesus has paid the price. In Christ, we have redemption, forgiveness of sins through his blood, by his blood, his sacrifice, he paid the cost. What's the restitution charges? How much is the ransom? What are the fees? Paid. His grace, it says in verse 8, has been lavished upon us. His goodness has been has been poured out toward us so abundantly, just lavished upon us that we might be redeemed. In him we have redemption and forgiveness. We no longer have to live as slaves to sin or to the enemy who would want want to hold us captive to that sin. Number two, it says in him we have obtained an inheritance in verses 11 and 12. This phrase, we have obtained an inheritance, is translated that way in the ESV. That's actually one Greek word. And it's used only here in the New Testament. So uh, its meaning is a little bit uncertain. I mention that because depending on what translation of the scripture you have, it might not say you have obtained an inheritance. The NIV doesn't say, doesn't use the word inheritance at all there, although I think it, as a footnote, has the word heir. It's not exactly certain how to say that in English, in other words. What is certain, though, is that it is in the passive. It's it's a passive verb, not an active one, that we have obtained, we have received. Something has been done for us. We are the recipients or the beneficiaries of it. Inheritance is not one that we somehow uh, secured for ourselves, deserved, or whatever the case may be that it is God who secured it, procured it for us. In fact, uh, another truth about this word that's at root here, we obtained an inheritance, the root means to obtain by the casting of lots. That's rolling the dice as we would know it. But you think about, this is, in the scriptures, and really not not only in the scriptures, in the New Testament era, in Roman culture, 
it was associated with, the casting of lots was associated with something being left up to the divine will. That is the will of God. Think about in Acts chapter 1 when Judas has died and um, they come, it comes time to replace him as one of the apostles and they narrow it down to two and then cast lots to see who God has chosen. Well, this, the, the word here about ob obtaining an inheritance actually has this root word, that the, that the lots have been cast, and it's, it is a matter of the divine will. Who are recipients of that inheritance? Now, all of that, again, the key point is to say, uh, here as, as is just a thread that runs through this whole passage of scripture that our that, that the favor of God toward us is not because of something in us it is not because he, he saw potential in us it's not because he saw good intentions or desires in us um, it wasn't because we got off to a good start and just had a rough go of it it, it, the reason and basis for it lies outside of us entirely. It is in Christ. And in the, the, the mind of God and his good purposes, it says multiple times in this passage how um, the things that have, he has done for us and toward us, he did according to the good purpose of his will, will according to his good pleasure. And it's good. And part of what's intended here, if, I am, if I'm missing the point in two tries at this, <laughs> last week in this, um, part of the point of this is to overwhelm us with the goodness of God toward us. Just, it is to say, we know we heard the gospel and believed it, that we entered into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but we don't know how good we've got it. And that's what he's just pouring out, just gushing out toward us. We don't even know how good we've got it. But it's all because of his goodness toward us. We've obtained an inheritance, been named in the will, got a copy of it. <laughs> Signed, witnessed, notarized, recorded at the courthouse. It's the real thing. And then thirdly, it says, in him, we've received a guarantee or a seal, a seal and a guarantee, actually, in verses 13 and 14. It says there, uh, actually in, uh, yeah, verse 13, in him, you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when that happened, that's the moment you and I remember, right? As I said, we, 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 we opened Ephesians 1, and it tells us our story began long before we remember our story beginning. And God was at work long before we realized God had anything to do with us. But what we do remember is when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and we believed. And when that happened, it says... As we go on in verse 13, you were sealed 
with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You know um, what an official seal looks like on any number of documents. In fact, I mentioned the notary. We may know the notary seal. Some have a stamp. Some have the steel that's actually, or a seal that's actually pressed, you know, um, in the paper or whatever that leaves a raised seal on it. All kinds of companies would have just some sort of official seal. When you think of in the ancient world, even an, uh, uh, an envelope or whatever that might be, a letter that might be folded and then a drop of wax dropped on that and then stamped with a seal that would close it shut and mark it as this is an official document from the sender, the king or whoever it might be. That's the picture he's offering us here of a seal. And he says, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That in giving us the Holy Spirit, we have been marked as belonging to God. He said, this one is mine. I don't mind being called that. How about you? I belong to him. He said so. Been marked by the Holy Spirit, and he serves as a guarantee, it says, a guarantee of our inheritance. This is the word we would associate with earnest money or a down payment. You think about when you go and make an offer on a house, and uh, it's not enough to say, uh, yes, yeah, save this one for me, I intend to buy it. If you intend to buy it, you write a check, right? Earnest money. That is, I really mean it. I'm just giving you this 1% or whatever it is with the full intention of giving the other 99% at closing. And we're going to, all the things that need to happen now to get us from here to closing, we're going to begin to do. But I mean it. Here's proof, here's evidence, I intend to buy this. That's the word that's used here uh, that's translated as a guarantee. It's a down payment, earnest money. The Holy Spirit was given to us as an assurance that everything else that he's just unpacked for us in the lot, all the other inventory of what is ours in Christ Jesus is surely ours. We will surely have it. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that, the down payment. Now bear in mind uh, that this was written by a man, Paul, who had quite a dynamic experience with the Holy Spirit. And so if you're not familiar with the scriptures very thoroughly, you just know that Paul was essentially a, a terrorist religious extremist. Like that, that's, that, is ver that is as good a description as you could come up with for us to understand him uh, before he became a Christian. He was a religious zealot uh, pursuing Christians, dragging them to jail, seeing some of them put to death. Um, I mean, he was, he was terrorizing Christians. They knew of him. His reputation went before him. And he was on his way to take Christians captive when the Lord 
Jesus, resurrected Jesus, met him on the road and changed his mind. <laughs> changed everything about him, actually. But he had a dynamic experience, not only with the living Lord, but then with the Holy Spirit. The veils removed from his scales actually fell, fell off his eyes. He understood what he had not understood. He, he understood the truth of what it is he had been denied. That's Paul. And he's writing to a community of believers that were, that were immersed in deep, deep darkness. If you were to read in Acts chapter 19, uh, th this is a, a place where you know, they burned books of witchcraft after they came to know the Lord. And people were healed. There, he had encounters with, um, you know, witchcraft and the demonic and that kind of thing. In fact, you may remember there was one episode there where um, what he was teaching was, uh, was costing some of the silversmiths a lot of money because they made idols for all the people to buy and to worship. And they started turning away from idols and turning to Christ, and it started costing them money. It the, the, sort of the city got turned upside down in a big uproar. There was a riot. That's the Ephesians. They had a real encounter with the living God. They had a real encounter with the Holy Spirit. See, they knew about spiritual things. They were all about spiritual things but dark spiritual things until by the sovereign grace of God they met the living God and had a dynamic encounter with the Holy Spirit. My, my point in sharing both of those things is this is written by somebody who really believes what he's saying about the Holy Spirit and this received by people who really know what he's talking about. That you have the Holy Spirit and they don't, they don't question that at all. He is very real to them. And perhaps the question might be how real he is to us and how much of a place he has not only in our experience but just in our walk with Christ. But those who have really had a saving uh, encounter with Jesus Christ, who have come to a real saving faith in Christ, have received the Holy Spirit, who changes the way we think, changes the way we operate, changes over time what we even desire to do, gives us the power to do what's good and to reject what is evil and so many other things, to discern the truth and to walk in it. But one of the reasons it is so vital for us, so essential for us as Christians to walk in the Spirit is so that in a very real way we hold on to the reminder that we have in Him a down payment. That the real experience we have, the real walk we have with the Holy Spirit is an ongoing reminder that He is guaranteed we will receive um, all that is procured for us in Christ. Which is an amazing thing to think about, as good as it is to know the Lord and walk with him on this earth. It's like the 1% the down payment. There is so much more in that lot awaiting us. Well, 
just to sort of tie this loosely together again as we wrap up, I'll say again that Ephesians 1 and 2 really lean into God's sovereignty. All that it just said um, is ours, is ours because he made it so. All that's ours we have received passively based on what he has done actively. And Ephesians leans into that hard. And David Hartness uh, a little earlier made reference to this metaphor I used last week, having, having come across this language where we're chosen from the foundations of the world that we're predestined for adoption. He uses the word predestined again here, again, that uh, uh, we've obtained an inheritance by his doing, not ours, all of this passive stuff. It, it often makes people uncomfortable when you start talking about those kinds of things and using that sort of language. They sometimes think from one perspective, it makes God seem unjust. Because we think of ourselves as, as all people being the, the, the good, tidy uh, orphans who are raising their hands saying, pick me, pick me, pick me, as if people are really seeking after God. But, but somehow it seems unjust for God to show favor on one and not all, or some and not all. From another perspective, some people think it seems like it makes God responsible for the sin of man. If he could do something to change that, why does he do that for all of us? And, 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 and how, does he, how does he hold them accountable for their sin? And what happens then, as with these kinds of questions coming to our mind, uh, people will feel like they need to explain in order to defend God's character. I don't know if I'm speaking to anything that, that resonates with you or that you understand even what I'm saying here, but uh, when you start talking about God's sovereign choice, particularly in salvation, it makes people uncomfortable and they start going, well, God's not really like that. I mean, you know, he's really a good guy and, you know, wanting to, feeling the need to defend God's character here. And here's all I want to point out today is that he has said some of these things very forthrightly and very clearly. And he does not want to be defended. He wants to be praised. Do you see that? He says three times here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. He is great and he is good and he intends to be praised for it. He does not intend to apologize for it and doesn't ask anybody else to go apologizing for him. It is all to the praise of his glory. And when he comes at the end of the age to wrap it all up, and he, and he judges the world in righteousness, as it says he will do. And he delivers uh, those who belong to him to eternal life and bliss and, uh, and, and communion with him in his presence. It is as if there will be a huge victory parade. The victorious king riding into the city. And it is all about celebrating him. 
It is all about celebrating him, the victorious king. This will be the scene in glory. And here's some of the good, good news. Is that those who have been saved will get to ride along on the parade float. <laughs> Amen. Isn't that good? That's good. And... Uh, And, and, and we'll be going, what? Oh, what do I need to do? You want me to throw some candy? Uh, wave? No, you, you just be. Be. Yeah, just, just be to the praise of his glory. You see that phrase there? That we who first trusted in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Just the very fact that we are the redeemed would declare to the uh, heavenlies, as it were, the greatness and the goodness of God, whose plan will not be thwarted, who himself cannot be defeated, that he, that he won a victory the enemy didn't see coming. He thought he had God in checkmate, and he stepped right into checkmate himself. And we will be trophies of his greatness, of his goodness, of the glory of his grace. Just being to the praise of his glory. And I will tell you this, we, will, we could spend our whole life on this earth as Christians trying to get our minds around the vastness of that truth. And the goodness of it. In fact, as soon as we turn the page, we don't even have to really turn the page. The we turn the page on the calendar. Next week, the next passage uh, that we'll take up in the in the next sermon. His prayer is, "I just I pray that you'll get it. It's so good. I just pray that you'll get it by the grace of God. To the praise of His glory." We've been redeemed, we've obtained an inheritance, we've received a guarantee, all to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. May what you have done toward us and all that you do in time remaining, may all of it serve to bring glory to your grace. God, it is my prayer that there would be people here today who hear the goodness, they, they, they just, their ears are open, their hearts are open to the goodness of who Jesus is and what he's done. Who by his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross, paid for our redemption, that by his resurrection, he secured victory over the enemy who held us in bondage to sin. 
that all those who hear that and believe it belong to him and receive all that's been procured by him. Lord, would you open the hearts for some to hear and understand that today. And God, I pray for all of us that you would deepen our understanding and heighten our gratitude at just how indescribably good you have been toward us. So Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would open hearts, convict hearts, challenge hearts, change hearts, that you would do dynamic and powerful and very real things as an assurance, as a guarantee that you really have shown favor to your people and will so infinitely, indescribably, immeasurably more in the ages to come. In Jesus' name.